0: Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are looking today at John chapter four, and this episode is entitled The Medical Ethics of Miracles. We need to review what makes John's gospel different than the other three gospels in order for us to talk about medical ethics, miracles, and John chapter four. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus was born, and sometime around the year 30, Jesus died. Now, some say he rose from the dead. About 40 to 50 years later, a man named Mark sat down and wrote a biography about Jesus, which would eventually become Mark's gospel. 10 to 20 years after the gospel of Mark, sometime around the year 90 CE, Matthew and Luke sat down to write their own biographies of Jesus and they most likely had a copy of Mark's biography sitting in front of them. 10 to 20 years later, sometime between the year 100 and 110 C.E., John sat down, looked at the other three Gospels and said, what this story about Jesus needs is some poetry. For that reason, the Gospel of John is more concerned with allegories and metaphors than historical accuracy. This is why we have been giving all of the symbolism and the metaphors in John's stories a lot of weight, a lot of priority, because we don't think that John is just recording details and facts. Rather, he is hiding symbolism within his stories that is valuable to understanding who Jesus is and who Jesus was. Now, with that in mind, we turn to John chapter 4. We recognize that this is the second miracle story in John's gospel. This is important because John's gospel is built around seven miracles that Jesus performs and John 4 is the second out of seven. Now, if you're like me, if you were to read John chapter 4 by itself and you grew up in the church, you would respond to the story by saying, I mean, it's fine, (laughs) it's a healing story, It's it's a miracle story, but I don't know what else we're supposed to take away from it. But when we consider the context and the symbolism of John's story, I have found that there are three radical ideas about the way of Jesus that are illustrated in this story. Now, these are not three radical ideas about church structure or church dogma or systems of belief. These are three radical ideas about the way of Jesus. And for anybody who claims to be a Jesus follower, whether that is inside the church or outside the church, it's important to pay attention where Jesus leads us in this story. And to understand that, we have to go back before this story was written to understand the context in which this story takes place. In fact, we have to go back four centuries before Jesus was born. Around the year 400 BCE, we are introduced to the father of Western medicine, Hippocrates. Hippocrates thought about health and wellness and illness and death different from those other physicians around him. It was so different, in fact, that Hippocrates believed that if you were sick, it was not because the gods were angry with you. Rather, it was due to your environment and lifestyle choices. To give you an idea of how revolutionary Hippocrates thinking was, imagine that you lived during Hippocrates' day and age. And during Hippocrates' day and age, you still loved to eat Oreos. But you ate a lot of Oreos, three boxes a day in fact. And after eating three boxes of Oreos a day for seven days a week, you started to feel very, very sick. Most of society would look at you and say, oh, man, the gods are angry with you. You need to repent. You need to tell the gods you are sorry, and then they will help you to get better. Hippocrates would hear all of society saying this. He would come up to you and say, you know, I think everyone else is wrong. I think if you lay off the Oreos, you might feel better. And if you listened to Hippocrates and stopped eating the Oreos and got back to being well again, you would look at Hippocrates and say, this man is ahead of his time. Now, Hippocrates believed in humoral medicine, which believed that the body was composed of four main substances. This humoral medicine has largely been debunked by the scientific community. But where Hippocrates is still celebrated, is for the medical ethics he introduced in the 5th century BCE to the Greek and to the Western world. After his death, several of his students took his most famous teachings or tenets of ethics and compiled them into something that the Western world calls the Hippocratic Oath. Now, if you read the Hippocratic Oath today, it begins with these words, I swear by Apollo Physician and Asclepius and Hygieia and Panacea and by both all the gods and all the goddesses making them my witnesses to fulfill according to my ability and judgment this oath and this contract. The opening paragraph of this oath invites the person to swear to the gods that they will abide by the terms of of this oath which is and was the highest ethical standard for medicine in Hippocrates days and the days after within that oath there are several tenets some of which are to respect your medical teachers another is to refuse payment for teaching others in the art of medicine apparently Hippocrates believed in free medical school education the third point is to practice the highest standard of care with each patient The fourth is to do no harm to your patient. And the fifth and last one is to keep patient confidentiality. And while the science of Hippocrates has largely been debunked and left behind by society, the ethics of Hippocrates is still celebrated to this day. In fact, if you go to any med school graduation in the country, they are more likely than not to end the graduation with the graduates reciting the Hippocratic Oath. Now there are of course updates to the Hippocratic Oath. The graduates do not pledge in front of Apollo that they will follow these standards. But the fact that we still recite this oath shows how much these ethics that Hippocrates outlined 2400 years ago were ahead of their time. Our modern society finds incredible value in the medical ethics of Hippocrates, and Hippocrates had an ethical mind that was unparalleled for his day. Which is what makes this next story so fascinating. A generation before Hippocrates, the empire of Persia and the city-state of Greece went to war. Persia had numbers and power and money and wealth on its sides, and the Greeks, well, they had home field advantage, and uh, that was about it. The Greeks were expected to be wiped out by the Persians, but somehow, way, the Greeks repelled the Persian invasion and conquered the most powerful army on earth. The Persians retreated back to their home, and a generation passed. Hippocrates was born, and a king named Artaxerxes took the throne of the Persian Empire. After some time, a plague broke out in Persia. Artaxerxes watched as his people began to die in large swaths and large numbers. He didn't know what to do, and he was desperate to protect the well-being of his people. Amid massive amounts of death, An advisor approached Artaxerxes and said, I have heard that there is a doctor in Greece who is smarter than anyone else in the world. I believe that he may have the talent to bring this plague to an end. Artaxerxes was desperate. Sure, it was just a generation ago that the Greco-Persian War had been fought, But Artaxerxes said, we will send this doctor, Hippocrates, every gift that we have. We will give him storehouses of treasure if he will come to Persia and help us figure out how to fight and cure this plague. So with a massive collection of wealth, messengers from Artaxerxes traversed the countryside all the way to Greece And they arrived at Hippocrates and they threw all kinds of wealth at his feet and said, will you please come and help us? We will make this worth your while. We are dying here in Persia. Hippocrates looked at the massive amounts of treasure and after thinking for a moment, said these following words, according to historian Jody Penalt, He said, I am not willing to enjoy the prosperity of the Persians, nor to relieve the illnesses of the barbarians, since they are enemies of the Greeks. And Hippocrates refused to help the Persians because they were his enemies. Now this story centered around the central figure of Western medical ethics, raises an important question. What is more important, patriotism or mercy? And Hippocrates very clearly chooses patriotism. It doesn't matter if he can gain all kinds of wealth from helping people who are in their hour of need, Because Hippocrates cannot be bought. He will be allegiant to the Greek empire and do whatever it takes to help the Greek empire go forward. About 400 years later, the Greco-Roman biographer Plutarch was born. Plutarch lived from 46 to 120 CE, during the lifetime of John who wrote the gospel we are studying. Plutarch recorded this story of Hippocrates and Artaxerxes. Now, we don't know if this story actually happened, but what's important for us to acknowledge is that this story was being told during Plutarch's day and age, so much so that he wrote it down. I bring this up because the story of Hippocrates and Artaxerxes circulated in Hellenistic culture during the time of Jesus and John. We can never know for sure whether Jesus or John heard this story. But what we can know with certainty is that this story was circulating as an ethical dilemma and an ethical question in the same culture and same area that Jesus and John lived during their lifetimes. One of the pressing ethical questions during Jesus and John's lifetime was whether patriotism was more important than mercy when it came to people who were sick. This is the background question That we must keep in mind when we read John chapter 4. We read in verse 46 Then Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. We need to stop here for just a minute and acknowledge what a royal official was. First century Palestine was ruled by the Roman Empire. And the way the Roman Empire worked is that they would go around conquering cities and then subjugating the conquered to be part of the Roman Empire so that the conquered would start paying taxes and make the Roman Empire more wealthy. The Romans weren't stupid. They knew that if they conquered a territory and then placed a Roman king in that territory, there would very quickly be a revolt. So, after conquering a new location, the Romans would look around at the locals and they would find a local that would ultimately be allegiant to Rome, that would tell other locals that it was important that they pay their taxes. They would then take that local that was allegiant to Rome and place them in a position of power and have that person then go and tell them all the difficult things that the locals didn't want to hear, like, hey, the Romans are raising your taxes. Such is the case with the Romans and the way that they operated in Palestine in the first century and before. Before Jesus was born, the Romans appointed a man named Herod to the throne to be king of the Jews. Now, Herod loved to tax the Jews, so much so that I've seen estimates from as low as 70% to up to 90% of a Jewish person's income was taxed by Herod. 90% of their income. Can you imagine? Now, what did Herod do with all of this income and all this taxation? Well, Herod loved to build. Herod earned the nickname Herod the Great because he built so many things. He would build entire coastal cities with the Jewish taxpayer dollars. And once these cities were completed, he would name them Caesarea, to honor the Caesar who gave him power. He would not name them Jewish cities or Jewish names for the people who had built him. Rather, Herod was like, we need to honor the Roman Empire. Why? Because that's where my power comes from. Now, Herod also rebuilt the temple on top of Temple Mount, but he also placed his palace right next to the temple so it was all placed in the same building project. And so while the Jews really appreciated Herod placing all this money for the temple, it also went back to Herod. And I've heard some reports that Herod's palace was just a little bit higher than the temple of Judaism. Now the process gets a little bit crazier because what Herod would do is he then would be in charge of appointing the high priest who would oversee the temple. What that means is the high priest was allegiant to Herod, who was allegiant to Rome, and so by proxy, the high priest was allegiant to Rome. So here was the high priest who was supposed to represent the people to God, and instead what they really were doing was representing the empire to the people. Not only that, but you see how this concoction of church and state was extremely problematic. Because here were the people that were supposed to be protecting the Jewish people. But instead, church and state was telling everyone, hey, the Roman Empire is good for you. And then they would tax them 70 to 90% of their income. So when we read about a royal official, what we have to remember is that this person represented Herod's court. This royal official probably lived an extravagant lifestyle on the backs of poor taxpayers like Jesus of Nazareth. And because John's gospel places a strong emphasis on allegories and metaphor, what happens here is that this royal official represents more than just himself. In this story, this royal official represents a corrupt and immoral civic administration, that stabs its own people in the back to get ahead in life, and ultimately betrays the very values upon which his nation was founded upon. In other words, this man is the corrupt government. And he goes before Jesus, and we have to ask, who is it that Jesus represents? Well, he represents the poor peasants who are suffering and being oppressed by this government. Jesus is God experiencing life at the hands of a corrupt government. And this royal official goes before Jesus, and we read what happens next in verse 47. When the royal official heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this man representing Herod's court goes before Jesus and begs him for help, begs him for mercy. And I have to ask you at this point, if you were Jesus, what would you do here? Imagine that someone who has been hurting you comes to you and asks you for help. What would you do here? I must confess that I would have a very difficult time helping this man in his hour of need. I mean, if I'm really living and walking in the shoes of Jesus and I've been taxed out of my mind, I've seen how this puppet government doesn't really care about the people it's betraying, but instead just cares about their own advancement in this life. Man, I would have a hard time helping him. At the very least, what I would do is I would start to bargain with him. I would say, sure, I will help you right now, but I need to see some help from you in the future. I need to see how this is going to kick back to me because I'm tired of this system. I can imagine that I would say to this person, I am going to help you, but I need to see some real reform from you and from the administration you represent. What would you do here if your enemy was begging you for help? It's here that Jesus says something rather strange to him. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now that is a confusing statement to me, and I believe it was a confusing statement to the official because the official just ignores it. He responds by saying, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus responds to these words by saying, Go, your son will live. Now I've heard the church tell this story and they follow it up with a statement of belief. The church will ask you, do you believe this story happened and this miracle occurred? Because if you do, you can be a Jesus follower, and if you don't, well, then you can't be. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that when you tell this story and compare and contrast it with the story of Hippocrates and Artaxerxes we are reminded that the medical ethic of Jesus' day was that you always prioritize patriotism over mercy. If Jesus prioritized patriotism over mercy in this story, he would have told this official, I cannot help you because you are working against what I am trying to accomplish. But what this story reveals is that the way of Jesus... Prioritizes mercy over patriotism. One of the most horrific realities of our day is the fact that right now our government, the American government, is separating children from their parents and locking kids in cages in an effort to send a strong message about undocumented migration. You know what this is? This is a prioritization of patriotism over mercy. I have personally heard a lot of Christians stand up and say, well, we have to send a strong message to people who are crossing this border illegally. And the reason these words sting so much is because we know that this prioritization is counter- to the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus prioritizes mercy over patriotism. And whenever we flip those two and protect our country at the expense of children, we are a nation going against the ways of Jesus. And the startling truth is, it's Christianity that is overwhelmingly supporting this administration that is going against the ways of Jesus. We need to reclaim this story. We need to remind ourselves that the way of Jesus prioritizes mercy over patriotism. And yes, we need immigration reform, but we do not do that in a cruel way that prioritizes patriotism over mercy. May we always remember that the way of Jesus prioritizes mercy over patriotism And over tribalism so Jesus says to the official go your son will live we then read the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way as he was going down his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive so he asked them the hour when he began to recover And they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. This story has completely changed. And that change can be found in this verse. Because John no longer refers to this man as the royal official, but instead, in verse 53, he now calls him the father. Oh, man, John is brilliant, in my opinion. And he's brilliant because this whole picture of who this person is has changed, hasn't it? Because when I read the father, I identify with this man as a father myself. I also have a son. His name is Bodhi. He is three years old. And I cannot imagine what I would do or who I would beg if my son fell ill. So I go from seeing this man as my enemy and seeing him as representing the corrupt government that has oppressed me. I see him embodying evil and embodying sin. And by the end of this story, John is asking me to see him as a father. My brothers and sisters, the second radical idea in this story is that the way of Jesus empathizes with the humanity of our enemies. And I don't know about you, but I will tell you that I have a very difficult time seeing the humanity of my enemies. Man, when somebody crosses me, I want to get revenge very, very quickly. And when I read about the way of Jesus empathizing with humanity of our enemies or when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, I will tell you that's a challenge so much so that when people ask me what's the hardest part about being a Christian, I always tell them it's learning how to love my enemies. And when someone crosses me, (laughs) you know how you feel? So when people ask me like, what do you do to learn how to love your enemies? I always say, well, it's a process, but one of the first things I do is I try to restore some sort of humanity and I try to see this person as a human being who has wronged me. And the way that I go about doing that is I first begin by asking myself, is this person a father or is this person a mother? If the answer is yes, then I say out loud the names of their children. And I remind myself that this person represents more than just themselves. They are trying to raise a family just like me. Now, if this person does not have kids, I ask myself, is this person married? And if the answer is yes, when I feel that I'm getting angry, and if I'm alone, I will say the name of this person's spouse out loud to remind myself that this person is more than just them. Now, if this enemy is not married uh, and doesn't have kids, then I will ask myself, who is this person's parents? And if I can learn the name of this enemy's parents, then I say those names out loud when I start to feel angry to remind myself that these parents and this person represent more than just themselves. I do this in an effort to mirror and mimic what John teaches us here, that yes, this person represents the corrupt government, But this person at the end, when we see and empathize with them, is ultimately a father. And the way of Jesus empathizes and establishes the humanity of our enemies. And if that sounds difficult to you, I would tell you that it is. It's the hardest thing to do within Christianity. But I believe in the power of the gospel that can turn royal officials into fathers. With that, we read the last verse in John chapter 4 with these words. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. And that is the end of the story of the royal official. If you are like me, then this story leaves you feeling a bit hollow, doesn't it? Yes, Jesus empathizes with the humanity of his enemy. Yes, Jesus reestablishes that mercy needs to be prioritized over patriotism. But I have some questions. What about the humanity of the poor and the powerless? What about the bad guys that this royal official represents? Do the bad guys win in the end? Another question, is Jesus apathetic to the horrific evils inflicted by people in power on the poor and powerless? And so we get to the end of this story, and while there are some good things in this story, it leaves me feeling hollow. And if John was with us here today on the podcast and we said, well, that's the end of the story, I believe he would ask his own question, which is, who said this was the end of the story? And I would say to John, well, you did. We got to the end of chapter four and you said that this was the second sign. And he would look at me and say, chapters? I didn't put any chapters in my gospel. Who put the chapters in my gospel? to which we'd have to invite another guest on our podcast so that this man could say, well, I did. And John would say, who are you? And this mystery guest would say, I'm Stephen Langdon, and I was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 13th century. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, Stephen Langdon was a guy who would reference stories in the Bible. And people would say, now, what story is that? And he would say, well, you know, it's the story that's about a third of the way through John and it's down on the page a little bit. And they would say, oh, well, let's go find it. And they'd have to like shuffle through all these pages to find the story he was referencing. So Stephen Langdon wanted to make the Bible easier to read and easier to reference. So Stephen Langdon added chapters. Now, it took several centuries until about the 16th century before chapters and then later verses were universally adopted into Scripture. Before that, they were just a book that would read from beginning to end. And I support the decision to add chapters and verses. It makes my life much easier. However, there are sometimes times that verses begin and end in the wrong spot. And there are other times when chapters are placed in inappropriate places. I believe that this chapter placement, with this story ending at the end of chapter 4, is problematic. Because I have a sense that John wanted us to read right into the very next sentence that is found in John chapter 5, verse 1. If you were to read John's original manuscript in the Greek, there would be no chapter separation and it would be just a brand new paragraph. So we read in John 4.54. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. And the next sentence is the beginning of chapter five. But I believe that John just wanted us to read. After this, there was a festival of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. These locations probably mean nothing to you, but it's important to understand what's happening here. Jesus goes from Cana down to Jerusalem, which is about 70 miles south. More importantly, Jesus is moving from the countryside to the capital of Judea. In the next verse, we read, Now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Beth Zatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Now we need to add a bit of the backstory about the pools of Beth Zatha before we go any further. There was a legend in this day and age that the pools of Bethzatha were blessed by God. And if someone would sit by the pool for long enough and wait for the waters to stir or for the waters to start moving, then it would be a symbol of the angel starting to stir or move those waters. Therefore, the myth was that anybody who would go into the water first would be instantly healed of anything that ailed them. So here is a man that we are introduced to who has been at the pool of Zatha for 38 years, which is longer than I have been alive. This man is everyone who has been forgotten by society. In fact, society would wish that this person who has been there for 38 years would just die. He can't make it into the pool. He's not getting any better. He just needs to die so that way he doesn't clog up or dirty the street, right? This man is everyone who has been forgotten by society. Jesus sees him and approaches him. And when we talk about who Jesus is, he represents God moving toward those who society forgets. Verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now the sick man answered him in the context in which he understood wellness. He said to Jesus, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. In other words, he says to Jesus, I believe in the myth of the angel stirring the water, but no one will help me and no one has helped me for 38 years to be the first into the pool. Jesus responds to this answer by saying, stand up, take your mat and walk. Verse nine, at once the man was made well and he took up his mat and began to walk. This story is remarkable. It's a beautiful healing story, but it becomes so much more powerful the moment we remove the barrier of the chapter. There is a commentary at play here when you compare and contrast the story of the healing of the royal official's son and the story of the cripple who has been there for 38 years. Yes, there is a corrupt government in this story. Yes, Jesus represents those who are being abused by this government. And somehow some way Jesus restores humanity to an inhumane situation. But that's not the end of the story. Because after giving a miracle to the rich and the powerful, Jesus makes a beeline to Jerusalem and finds the poorest and the most helpless and provides the same miracle for that man. In other words, the way of Jesus goes out of its way to give access to the same health care that the rich and powerful receive to the poor and powerless. And whatever kind of care is provided for the rich man must also be available to the poor man. Now, it's here that you may recoil and say, oh, Craig, this podcast and the pulpit are no place for politics. Why did you have to make this a political sermon? This doesn't belong here, to which I would say, oh, yes, it does. Because when John tells us the story of a royal official, we have to remember that this royal official is a political figure. These two stories are a political story and a political statement in the fact that when you have a cure or you have medicine or you have care, whatever happens for the richest must also happen for the poorest in order for there to be medical justice, right? And the tragedy of American politics today is that we've made healthcare a partisan issue. While John's story is a political story, it is not a partisan story. And if you are listening to this story and this podcast and you're trying to place me into a political party, it's at that moment that I would say that the political establishments have won. The political establishments want you and me to believe that healthcare is a partisan issue. It's not any healthcare system or healthcare plan that provides greater care for the rich than the poor is against the way of Jesus. And I'm not here to tout a candidate. I'm not here to tout a party. What I'm here to say is this anyone who works toward providing the same level of care for the rich as for the poor is someone who is walking in the way of Jesus. And what I find so inspiring about these two stories is how Jesus offers generously this health care to someone who is his enemy. He then immediately takes a trip to Jerusalem and finds the person who has suffered the most from that corrupt government and offers him the same health care. This reveals the third radical idea about Jesus in this story. The way of Jesus works tirelessly toward justice in our healthcare system. My brothers and sisters, when we consider these stories, may we remember that the way of Jesus is paved with mercy, empathy, and justice. And may we boldly follow Jesus and embody mercy empathy, and justice to others and to ourselves. May you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.